Welcome to Tail Time Podcast. Woo! Woo! Let's go. Yay! Yay! Yeah. I like Tail Time. Thanks, Sebulba. Thanks for coming on, pal. Oh. Uh, but welcome to Tail Time Podcast, a podcast where we read your stories here in couples therapy, trying to understand why exactly Dan keeps walling up his emotions. <laughs> I just can't let go. We are your hosts. I'm Andrew <laughs> Burnick. To the left of me is someone who we all know needs to work on his communication skills, Dan Palmer. Yeah. <laughs> and to the right of me is yeah. a man who I feel like is just using me for sex, Jacob Bransky. Uh, I've been trying to explain it's not what you think. Right. It's like <laughs> I understand, but it's I also know that. Why is it only uh, 2 a.m. that you text me? Is that I really I just need it? you for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I was actually watching uh, Everybody Loves Raymond, and that line was in That's it That's an awful night. show. I hate that <laughs> show. I love I that love show. I love that show. It's Dude, way better than King of Queens. And King of Queens Everybody loves Raymond. I don't... Uh, that sounds like a cult. Like you don't a, watch Seinfeld. You look like Seinfeld. <laughs> <laughs> you don't watch oh, Everybody actually, Loves Raymond. We got to tell our listeners at home, stay tuned because we're going to do a Facebook Live of me telling Seinfeld jokes very soon. As soon as I, I'm going to order a Seinfeld mask and once that comes in, just three straight hours. <laughs> you don't need a mask. Hamming it up. Oh, yeah, that's right. I don't yeah, need a mask. The mask of yourself. Or I'm going to pull off the mask and it's going to be <clears throat> me. And they're like, oh, wow, are you going to, you know, is it? Are I you, think you got a mask on now, and I you mean, are Jerry Seinfeld. You look like Seinfeld. You went you went across the country to California, and someone asked mm-hmm. you if you were Seinfeld. I remember that. It's, I was in it was in the Navy at the time, and it was actually in like it was some commit like a, a conference or whatever. And it was like before you go on the boat, you need to go through all these regulations and everything. And we were sitting, we all didn't know each other, and this guy kept looking at me, and I thought, I don't know, is he checking me out? Does he want to fight me? And he just kept looking at me like that, For like a really minutes. like. A, eating smirk and i'm like all right about like uh, right yeah (laughs) eating smirk and um and i kept looking at him and i'm like i don't know i just getting like pissed off and then eventually like there was a lull in the conversation or whatever and the instructor left the room and he's like i'm sorry dude you look just like jerry seinfeld (laughs) and like and he said it loud enough so half the room was like they all looked over and they're like oh my god that does look like jerry seinfeld (laughs) jerry's in the navy yeah tell a bunch of what's wrong jerry on hard times what's going on buddy you got any jokes for us so yeah that was i literally thought it was just you for the longest time and then i went across the country i went across the country to get away from that yeah and it just follows me everywhere so Maybe Can't hide from something about that face, you know? Something about His it. His mannerisms, too. I mean, if you really watch mannerisms, show, like, right. it, it's there. Mannerisms. 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 Word of the day, everybody. Mannerisms. Annumannerisms. mannerisms. Thank you. I can't wait for you to be a... IQ of a toad. <laughs> I can't wait for you to be medically examining me, and you're like, well, we took a look at your mannerisms, and it seems that you're dying, so... <laughs> You've got approximately 30 minutes to live. Do we want to do a Facebook, like, I think you can do, like, a little vote, right? Like, does he look like Jerry Seinfeld? Yeah, yeah you can nay. do, like, polls. Yeah, you can do polls and stuff? All right, we'll do a poll. Do you want to do a poll? Do a poll. We'll do a poll. Look out for the poll, everybody. I'm actually really excited for this poll. Oh, I bet you are. You're going to sign on to a strip poll? 17 different fireman poll? Do you have any signs on to like 17 different accounts? <laughs> Before we get started today, we would like to thank a few people for their help with this podcast. Uh, the book Pace and Method. Pace and Method teaches creativity. And Matthew Hayducky, the very talented graphic artist over at tpublic.com. Uh, so today's stories are actually really exciting. I'm really excited for today's stories. We're each going to read a different story that was submitted. We have three separate readings. Uh, sort of like a vignette, sort of different uh, different thing. We have a short story, uh, a full-length short story, a quick little poem that Jake's going to read, and I'm going to read an excerpt from a longer 20-page short story. So uh, 
that's pretty much it. Uh, today's topic for everybody is it's kind of like a, a smorgasbord of different different things. We have uh, spying, spying on someone, espionage. We have youthful angst, so your teenage years maybe, or we could just talk about our feelings here at Couples Therapy since we're all here in the podcast. One of my favorite video games when I was little was here we go. James Bond, here we go. Nightfire. Night? Are you kidding me? I thought you were going to say Goldeneye. How do you even... Conf- what? Dude. Nightfire was Nightfire. good. On GameCube, right? Yeah, on GameCube. I missed... All day. That was a really, really, really good game. And that had a good story to it, too. It wasn't like one yeah. of these like ABC super predictable ones. Right. That- James Bond good one's really good. I yep. think I'm going to say Goldeneye, though. <clears throat> that, that, like Phantom Menace, was the defining point of my childhood. Because multi- The movie or the game? The movie, yes, absolutely. The game, too, though, because you had the N64 and his four players. Goldeneye. That was the best. And Ajab with his little hat and everything. Oh, oh yeah, Ajab, that little... Did you have an N64 growing up? I still do. I don't know where it is, though. Yeah, I played that way into the 2000s. I mean, played that probably when everyone was like... You know, with their PS2 or whatever, I was still playing N64. That's awesome. I yeah. love that. Nick and I will still play GameCube. Dude, GameCube's fun. Because, I dude, GameCube. I loved the, I, the Super Smash Brothers, SSX Tricky. Forget about it, oh, son. SSX. Oh. Dude, I was I was actually just looking at um a game online, Rush 2, Rush 2049. I don't know if you guys ever played the Rush games. They were very good. They were very fun. Um, I wasn't a big skateboarder, but I played Tony Hawk's underground wait tony hawk's pro skater underground 2 okay that oh, was the best one that dude. was that was the bomb. that was so much you were like this vigilante <laughs> who would like beat up pedestrians and then you do a sweet kickflip off like some old, yeah. old granny's cane or Boom. something it was the coolest it was awesome i love that and it was one of the, it like inspired me to buy a ca- skateboard i asked my parents for a skateboard one christmas and I got it. And I was, yeah, that was exactly it. <laughs> We're going to do another Facebook Live of me just trying to wobbling skateboard. on a skateboard for 45 minutes. So keep keep in tune. Um, I was just watching uh, on Vice the, it was three groups, Chocolate, Toy House, and, uh, or Toy Machine, I mean, and uh, Birdhouse. Mm. And those, those are, are like, like three skate labels that have been around right. forever. And they compete. It's like a... Uh, like a, what is it called? Scavenger hunt with skateboarding tricks and stuff like that. Oh, oh that's so cool. It was cool. so awesome to I watch. I remember the, the tech decks. Um, everyone had tech decks. Oh, like yeah, that was grade. huge. Oh, yeah. and, Tamagotchis uh, and tech decks. I remember, I, I remember I got the bird. I still have it. The birdhouse deck with like, you know, the skeleton bird. And it was like the sickest tech deck. And then I was like, I'm the coolest kid here because look at my... Could you get good at those? Like, were they actually kids who were just like... Yeah, people would. People were, like, really really good at it. Really? I had my own personal, like, I bought my skate park, like, a little tech deck skate park, and I sucked at it. What are they? Today, I saw VHSs are now going for, like, people are paying thousands of dollars for original VHSs of Disney movies. Thousands? Thousands of dollars on eBay, yeah. Dude, I I got a wall full of them. So many. There you go. Well, what are you doing here? They're not really... You don't need a podcast (laughs) for a living anymore. They're not really in great condition, though. But, yeah. Yeah, I always thought... I think that, I feel like I feel bad for the people that collected Beanie Babies, thinking like this is it, this is our retirement fund, babe. You just wait. Yeah, right. Twenty thirty, people are going to be lining Beanie up around the block. Too, yeah, really, yeah, really I had good. a bunch of Beanie Babies. I didn't. I never kept any of them in in good condition. Though. I used them. I know. I had one that was my favorite, and I forgot its name, but it was a shark. What's the limit of people having Beanie Babies before it gets weird? Before it's like you walk into a house, ten. Ten is like okay. Oh, yeah. I had like sixty. 
A grown man, 40, divorced, walking to the house. First thing, he built a shelf with his Beanie Babies. What's the limit there for you to be like, okay, like, I don't know what's, this is a little strange. One. One? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's got like, his Tamagotchis over here. Yeah. Or, you know, you got the Beanie Babies over here. I think that's creepier. I think that, I think that there's two there. Either you, it's creepy to have one. Or like a thousand. Anywhere in between is fine. But if you have one or a thousand, like because well, if you have one, one, I'd want to hear the story behind it. And maybe I'd be like, all right, I get it. Right. It's sexual, and then he leaves it at that. What if he said it was just like it's a sexual thing? I don't want to get into it. And he turns. It's just like he turns and leaves his own house. And he's you're in his house, like uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> a weird like beanie baby fetish. <laughs> he comes back in dressed like a beanie baby that's on the shelf. <laughs> Ah, I get it now. <laughs> why did where did I meet you again? Why am I what is going on? I don't understand why I'm here. Dude, that's so funny. Jeff met him in the frozen food aisle. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff come back, but I don't know what we did, man. But I'm sorry. You're a great podcast host. Um <laughs> The story I'm reading today is Story number one, which is called Life is But a Screen by our wonderful composer's girlfriend, Emily Hopkins. Emily lives in Los Angeles, California with Andrew Payson. Uh, she's a writer herself, and she threw us this quick little bio that I'm going to read right now. Uh, I was born and raised in Washington, D.C., and D.C. really is a city with spies. Many people seem to think of spies as mythical creatures, but they actually exist and are often very ordinary people. However, just beneath their ordinary facade lies a very interesting and compelling reality. And that, in its essence, is the idea that I find endlessly interesting, the study of what lies beneath. So the story I'm going to read today is actually an excerpt from a longer story. It was a bit too long. We wouldn't be able to, to fit into the podcast, but I, I took a really cool part out of it. Uh, it follows William Fortier, an intelligence agent working for the United States, probably the CIA or the NSA. And it's about how he taps into public cameras, specifically this time a street camera, and watches a particular TV anchor through her house window. Like, so he's at his desk and his laptop and stuff, and he's watching her through this, uh, this video security camera. Uh, he eventually becomes fascinated by her. It's almost like this voyeur sort of thing and keeps watching her like every day. And he's like fascinated and, you know, she's a TV anchor, so she's on TV, but then he gets to see her private life and it's sort of strange and you know, it's kind of wrong, but he's like really obsessed with it. Um, obviously he's breaking every government rule in the book. So he's, he's really nervous that he's going to get caught. Uh, but the section I'm going to read today leads up to the climax of the piece. So, uh, about six pages earlier, he's been like spying. He doesn't really know what to do. He's kind of conflicted. And the part I'm going to read today is, um, the ultimate climax and this is life is but a screen by emily hopkins three days went by and for a little while of each day at work and for a little while each day at home william looked into the life of another it's now saturday for today and the next william would have no access to the camera footage he vowed right here and now not to ever watch it again the lead the person who had triggered the key words and which had originally allotted William with the opportunity had not panned out. He was just a professor researching different radical factions for an upcoming presentation at a conference. There was no longer any pretext to use his camera. It would be too dangerous, and moreover, it was wrong what he had done. I'm going to put her out of my head for good, William thought. This day and the next, he did much more than he ever did on the weekends. First, he cleaned his house. While cleaning, he discovered how disorganized he had been, and decided now was a better time than any to change this. 
So he ventured to the container store and purchased plastic bins, clothing hangers, filing folders, manila envelopes, and on impulse, a label maker. The entire function of which was to print out insipid labels into tiny white strips to be placed on any and all things. As if he might one day forget what a fridge was, and the only way to prevent this was to label it. On a side note, he never used a labeler. It ended up in an unorganized junk drawer alongside rubber bands, a wrench, takeout menus, used batteries he never bothered to dispose of, and a broken flashlight. After cleaning, Will moved on to meaningless paperwork that had backed up over the years. No one expected him to ever get around to these things or wanted them once they were completed and emailed. For a brief moment, when deciding what to do next to keep busy, William considered getting a pet. He went through each pet option. Dogs were too much work, he decided. He was allergic to cats, so they were not for him. Spiders scared him. Birds were too much like robots with all their strange mechanical movements. Fish were hardly a pet at all. And most certainly, exotic pets were off the table. This left him with rodents. While Googling the personalities of different types of rodents, he accidentally clicked the button for recent searches and saw Catherine's name pop up. He clicked on the link. Her Instagram showed a photo of her in front of the mirrored bean-shaped sculpture in downtown Chicago with the caption, So excited to be interviewing Oprah. Fingers crossed she gives me a new car. Hashtag you get a car. She was out of town. The temptation to watch her tomorrow at work was eliminated. Never before could William remember feeling such relief. A week passed, and though he watched NBS nightly, including Catherine's one-on-one -on -one with Oprah, and searched her on the internet from the privacy of his home, William kept his promise to himself not to use work resources to spy on her. He did his job with more enthusiasm and diligence than ever before, and poured himself into his work, even finding a young teenager who was close to joining a terrorist organization before any harm had been done. Mr. Fortier felt good, strong, and proud, manly even. Would Kathy think him manly? Never mind, that's not the point. The point was that through hard work and determination, in other words, through cliches, William had resisted temptation. His diet had proved successful and he thought about Catherine only as much as any fan would. Once this week, he even heard co-workers discussing the NBS Oprah interview during a lunch which he had tagged along for, and he chimed in with nonchalant remarks of his own. His fellow spies were curious and their spidey senses tingled when he had asked to join them at the cafe across the street. They smiled and said, of course. Removing his tie Friday night, he felt wonderful. Job well done. When he dreamed this night, he dreamed of sex with Kathy. Nothing kinky, nothing cheesy, just natural. And it felt wonderful. Waking up Saturday morning, he had never felt so alive. By the time he went to work again on Monday, he was in love. A special surprise greeted William when he finally broke his rules late at night, staying in the office a lot later than usual. Catherine's home was dark, and she was not there. Of course, not seeing as she would be on the air in an hour and was at work mistake that William realized nearly as soon as the image appeared. But what was different was that he could now see her bedroom. Kathy was redecorating and about to paint her walls. In preparation, she, or a hired worker more likely, had moved all of her furniture to the center of her rooms, had covered them in plastic, and most importantly, had taken down her curtains. William didn't actually want to miss seeing Kathy during his regularly scheduled programming, so he clicked off the image, covering his tracks, and hurried home to the television. Instead of staying late again and making the same mistake as the night before, William got to work very early, before six. Catherine had not slept in her apartment that night because of the painting. Instead, she stayed in a hotel. She was only getting back home by the time that Will got to work. She threw down her overnight bag, took the elastic hair tie out of her ponytail, and proceeded to her still visible bedroom. She then began to undress. William became very excited. 
but he got the strong urge to turn off the camera footage. He was just about to do this when something changed. A noise, William soon implied the noise of the doorbell, startled Kathy and got her to redress in her old clothes quickly and rushed to answer the caller. She ran to the door and opened it to reveal a handsome middle-aged blonde man. He was tall, towering above Kathy's five-foot-five frame and strong with a chiseled, possibly German or Scandinavian face. Clearly, although William had no audio to accompany this footage, Catherine knew this man, but was not expecting him and not completely pleased to see him. She invited him to sit on her plastic-draped couch. It soon dawned on William that this was the first person besides Kathy herself that William had ever seen in the time since he had begun watching her apartment. It now occurred to him how odd that was. Sure, no one was ever at the house, but Kathy was a famous young newscaster. It was a similarity between himself and her that he had never noticed until now. The man and Kathy talked. Each was visibly uncomfortable. After a little while, the conversation turned heated. In other words, they soon began to argue. Catherine started to cry and stood up from her seat and stepped aside, gesturing that she would like the man to now leave. Here's where things changed. Catherine's tears deeply moved William. For the second time since arriving to work today, he got the urge to power down the software. What happened next stopped him. The man came upon Kathy with a leap of a feline, forcing her to move backwards into her bedroom. He was screaming at her, and fear was written all over her face. The force of the attack that followed caused Catherine to hit her head against the corner of two walls and fall violently onto the concrete floor. She made no movements and blood splatted and stained both walls and the area that encircled her head on the floor like a twisted version of a halo. Her tabby cat was the only one who came to her aid, sitting beside her prostrate owner and pawing at her to try and force her to come to. Both men watched the woman, shocked by what had happened. The man who was with her bent to the ground and checked for a pulse. It was unclear whether he found one. Minutes later, as both men were at an impasse as to how to proceed, Catherine moved. She started to rise. The man fell upon her once again in what William at first mistook for an attempt to help. His hands gripped her neck like a choker necklace and clenched for three minutes and 13 seconds until Catherine was once again motionless. She had died at 6.17 a.m. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, my God. Wh what am I supposed to do? What, what am I going to do? What should I do? I don't, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. William panicked, working himself into a conniption. Why hadn't he done something sooner? Why hadn't he stopped this? He could have stopped this. If only he had called 911 when she was on the ground and still alive. If only he had called 911 when the man entered the home or when they began to argue. But how could he explain how he had seen what he had seen? He never should have seen it. Or was he always meant to see it? Was that why he had felt compelled to spy on her for so long, to see things through to this conclusion, or to prevent it, which he had failed at? That motherfucker, I'm gonna find you and get you for what you did to her. God, if anyone can, it's me. I've used the government's resource until now. Why not continue? I'm going to get you. Though William would never admit this, her death had made her perfect and had made her his. She now belonged to him for eternity, his one-sided lover whose life he had presided over during her last days as her helpless angel. He and the murderer were linked forever in the crimes they shared of her. This man whom William had caught in the act was not a terrorist. He could not go to others at work and confess what he had done and had been doing and what he knew. What was even the point now? She was already dead. Now all he could do was to try and help her in the last way available to him. Avenging her. 
That was Life is But a Screen by Emily Hopkins. Emily, that was an awesome, awesome, awesome story. I love that. That was like, uh, I read the entire thing. It's about 21 pages uh, fully, but I think this was like the perfect little excerpt to take from it because um, it's 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 at like the height of the action. Obviously, he's been doing this for a long time and he's severely conflicted. And then this murder just comes out of nowhere. I, I think it's great. Yeah, no, I, I definitely enjoyed that because at first I was like, oh, this is like a classic story where it's like, the viewers are looking at at him like you would think that he's like a bad guy, like oh he's looking at this girl, you know, being kind of like a, a, a what do you call it, a, a peeping tom kind of like a, guy. a voyeur, right? Yeah. But then it's like, but is he a bad guy? So you start seeing like his side of it, and then I was like, all right, well this is kind of going another way, like a guy's entering the door, right? Right. So I'm like, ah, of course, like that heartbreak, and now he's got to like watch this other guy like be with the girl that that he's loving, like falling in love with. But then it like twists again, right? Yeah. And she gets murdered, and then now he's like, "Oh crap! Like I can't, like I don't know what to do because yeah, can't I can't him. admit that I've been, you know, spying on this woman." Right. But I think that he should have done something, and then at the end, just like exile himself. Well, he, yeah, <laughs> like, like leave, like <laughs> yeah, he can't. Yeah, do I screwed up, and I was totally watching her, but like you saved a life, and then you could. That's like. He, he would have lost his job. It's kind of like uh, Edward Snowden, where he kind of like talked out, but it was against the government, and then now now he's stuck in Russia and he can't do anything. You know what I mean? Like right. it's like, what do you do? And he's yeah. ostracized, dude. Like people are so fifty fifty about him because Edward Snowden. Edward Snowden, yeah. Because yeah. people, I know people from the military. My friends are like, he overreached. He shouldn't have done that. There was a lot of files in there that were sensitive to the government and that jeopardized a lot of operatives' lives. And the other side, they're saying, listen, like the American government was operating without their with from outside of their jurisdiction. They were doing things that were obviously illegal. Like mm-hmm. uh, we need mm-hmm. to have whistleblowers that are talking about this. So it's like, right. It's really interesting to see that that perspective. So it is kind of cool to see. I think the story is really cool in that light and sort of brings out the whistleblower community and how people talk about it. And and uh, you know, President Obama at the time he he said that um, Edward Snowden did something wrong and he should pay for his crimes. And you know, he's still over there. So it's it's an ongoing discussion in American what politics. What is he? What is even he doing in Russia? He's not allowed to come back ever. He's got amnesty from the Russian Federation. So <laughs> that's definitely a political move. But I feel like Vladimir Putin was like, "Oh, please come with me. Come right. on my yes. little wing. I will yeah, protect right. you. You know things that I want to know." It's not even that. I think it's an embarrassment to the United States. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, you screwed over tonight. It's the good. That is good. <laughs> <laughs> Keep embarrassing them. Perfect. Edward Snodzivkovsk. Your name will be now. (laughs) I hope you like Borsk. You will be eating it for a long time. (laughs) A long time. But thank you so much, Emily, for submitting that. It was so much fun. Dan, what did you think of it? Dude, that was great. Yeah. I mean, that was I was on the edge of my seat the whole time. Yeah, it was really fun. If anybody wants to read read the end of it, please let us know and yeah, you know, no, for sure. whatever, and we'll uh, we'll send you the ending. So thanks so much, Emily. All right, story number two. Now we're going on to is this short little poem. So it'll be really quick. Uh, it's called "Nothing Much for Miners." The second piece is all the way from India. There we go. Written by Sahaj Subharwal from Jammu City in the Indian state of Jammu and Kashmir. Please, I hope to God I got all that right. If I did not chastise me, please call me out. So Sahaj says he loves writing poetry and uh, all his other thoughts down. He's 17 years old. He says he has been awarded many awards in poetry at the state, national, international level. Nothing much for minors. Minors are those less than 18, as they don't have knowledge and keen. They don't have a driving license, as they don't have driving sense. Minors are given just a pen and a page. Their life is not more than a cage. Holiday is not given even on Sundays, as their age is negligible for fun days. Parents are worried not to get blame. For minors, they just want their fame. 
Circumstances are the same for every minor. Parents are just their life designer. That was great. That was a short little one. That was, that cute. was yeah. very nice. That was very nice. That was fun. It was a fun little one. Thank you, Sahaj, for sending that in. Yes, um, I like that a lot. Yeah, it was good. It was good. Uh, I, I remember my days. I wasn't really a rebel. I think the biggest rebel thing I did was not wear my helmet on a skateboard or something. Oh, like, I went around the corner, oh, right? Oh, at 10 years old. Oh, dude. Mama Brunig, when she saw little baby Brunig, baby bird Brunig, not wearing his protective helmet when he's right. Oh, oh man, I'm... Bet. And it w- I was in front of all Bet. the cool skater kids in the street. Of course, they didn't wear helmets, dude. They were cool, man, doing kickflips and everything. Right. You can't wear a helmet. You're gonna, your girls don't like that. But uh, And then I would take it off when I thought my mom wasn't looking, but she was always looking. Always. And busted out the door. Andrew, what do you think you're doing? Put on that helmet right now before I crack your <laughs> But yeah, thanks so much. That was fun. Uh, our third piece is a little bit more local, not as far away as um, India is. It, it is titled Candy Smoke. It's written by Tess Adams from Westchester, New York. Tess Adams is a sophomore English and theater double major with an acting directing track at Quinnipiac University. She's a member of the Fourth Wall Student Theater Group, Greek Life, Montage Literary Publication, and the University Honors Program. She hopes to move to New York City one day following graduation in order to pursue a career as an actress and a producer. All right, uh, Dan, why don't you take it away with the title of the story and who wrote it? Candy Smoke by Tess Adams. Gina only smoked cigarettes when she was feeling dangerous. On a Friday or Saturday when she filled a plastic cup with candy-colored liquid from a spotted cooler lying lame on the floor of an unfinished basement or garage. When she had downed that candy liquid, when she could finally sip from the mouth of one bottle or another because it did not sting like it did before the candy, but made her nose tingle just a little and her tongue go numb and her brain swim. She might find herself standing outside with a boy or two, or three, taking a drag of a cigarette that she didn't light herself, dragging in all that smoke like a meditative breath, and watching clouds of white envelop her mouth and nose, exacerbated by the coolness of the night air. Half the buzz came from playing the game, from breaking all the rules. The other half came from the nicotine, a life raft for the head which, in Gina's case, was drowning. The game resuscitated her. Gina only smoked cigarettes when she was flirting with a man she wasn't supposed to be flirting with. Someone's boyfriend, someone's brother, someone's dad. The drug fiend, the creepy guy. The boys changed, the cigarettes always tasted the same. Her dad had smoked cigarettes, and it was his cigarettes that she had tasted first. Not by smoking them, of course, but by sneaking into the kitchen so that she could watch the upper half of his body hang out the window, by tugging at his jeans and saying, Papa, no smoking. And by him saying, something mumbled. Maybe that he was quitting soon or that this was only his second today. His cigarettes smelled like disappointment, the kind only a child of four or five who feels right and wrong so deeply can know. Now, at 15, cigarettes did not smell like disappointment. Cigarettes smelled like sin. Sin was much more fun. Now she could taste the cigarettes herself. Now the memory was muffled. Now she didn't tug at jeans to ask a fool's question, but to do something dangerous because she had swallowed the candy and it had given her superpowers. Gina was feeling dangerous tonight as she accepted a light from a boy she knew had been infatuated with her for two years, but was now dating the new girl whom Gina had already befriended. She watched him watch her take a long drag, 
and when she exhaled, she parted her lips only slightly, so that the smoke rolled gently from the back of her throat and into the dark that filled the space between them. As though from a distance, she could hear the echo of his voice calling to her, smiling at her, speaking hyperly because, even though he had been crushing on her for two years, they had never actually had a real conversation. The best part was how he sang to her. It was the best because Gina knew he had a girlfriend, whom he loved. Yet just by letting him light her cigarette, she suddenly reclaimed all the power she had once wielded over him. She had never let him occupy a thought of hers before, but now she was playing the game. The game which gave her a greater high than an entire pack of candy smokes. And she was playing it with great mastery. A drag, an exhale, a song he sings, she smiles, he jumps, a shiver. Are you cold? Maybe just a little. Another drag, hold, exhale closer. He smiles, she whispers. What? She moves closer, so does he. Deeper exhale. He is drawn in like a magnet and cannot control the hot breath that comes next on the tip of her ear, her neck, collarbone, a hand of hers tugging at jeans while the other dangles the last embers of a cigarette beginning to burn holes in her fingertips. Gina only kissed boys she knew she wasn't supposed to kiss. When he was finished, she found herself reaching into the back pocket of his jeans now lying crumbled on the grass beside her, pulling out a final smoke, lighting it for herself this time. She inhaled ash, washing away the taste of him, burning the evidence, singeing each molecule of his DNA that floated in her mouth. She imagined them screaming, the molecules. And as he dressed and said, well, I, I guess I'll see you at school, she imagined she was singeing him too. Staring at the ash marks on her fingertips, she imagined placing two on the nape of his neck and burning a hole straight through to his Adam's apple. She imagined the hole growing, eating away from him, burning him up so that soon he too was ash. Instead, she said, see ya, and placed two fingers at the nape of her neck to see if she instead could crumple into dust and float away. Dang. That was Candy Smoke by Tess Adams. That was, I love that. That's yeah. That's that good. actually. That was very good. That was really, really good. That actually won an award, I think, at uh, the school that I go to. Yeah, I go to Quinnipiac Union very well. And it was worthy. A lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of emotion in that, I feel like. I mean. A lot of small moments, too. One thing that, as a teacher, we're always talking about um, with the students is to you know, not tell the broad story, not try and include everything that happened, but focus in on a small part of the story. Instead of telling all about your entire day going to the amusement park, focus in on the feeling that you had going down the roller coaster for the first time. That's great. Just that piece. That's you a know? great piece. And so that's that's what I thought of when I was reading the whole interaction between between her and him smoking the cigarette and and how it how it eventually turned into them making out or that's some really cool advice to give your students I think that um, that 
kind of has a more visceral emotionality to it when, right. you, when you focus in on one thing. And I think it did really accomplish that here. Um, I think there was so much in it, the fact that she kind of, you could see that there was like a family thing behind it and that kind of propelled her to do these things that she right. chased these certain men that were really not, not really good for her particularly to be mm -hmm. involved with, but that, that excitement kind of reminded her of her father or whatever. And it was really just kind of, I think it really touched in on especially from the female perspective, I think it's really good that we had that because uh, a lot of it, I mean, it's just three men, you know, always reading all these stories, but I think it's good to have their female perspective because it just shows like a different side of adolescence right. when you're kind of on that <clears throat> side. And you know what I mean? And that's also her way of rebelling. And mm -hmm. I thought it was beautifully written. I thought it was real too. It was very true. Yes. It was very real. Yeah. It seemed like it came from the heart. I loved it. I loved it so much. Um, and the way that the words flowed really, really well. So thank you so much, Tess. Yeah. Really good. Um, I wanted to add that, uh, yeah, like, there's probably more. Th this is like a longer story, right? This one? Or this is short. This oh, was, yeah, like, this, 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 was this one was the short It could story. easily be turned into, like, a great novel, though, like, with the way oh, her, yeah. her uh, relationship was with her father, why she is what the way she is. But I love the line. It's like, when the guy's leaving, like, well, I guess I'll see you at school. And she was like, yeah, like, see ya. Like, like she's so just like, that, right? yeah, she's just so... I've definitely uh, seen nice. that look before. I think we all have when we're in college <laughs> and we're talking to a girl. Maybe we're like being a little bit more cheeky than we should. Uh, and gonna... she gives you that look like, yeah, I'll see you around. You know what I mean? I've yeah. definitely seen that where it's I like, I got to You'll never see Obviously, like, yeah. like independent, but like a rebelish, like a rebel, like independent kind of girl. And the way that she was with her father, she kind of wants to like, I don't know, it just absorbed her in a certain way where now she's kind of like, yeah, well, like F you too, you know? Right, right. Yeah, I see. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I feel like it's a way of her finding herself too. And I think we all kind of have to rebel in a certain way to find ourselves. I, I mean, I wasn't the biggest rebel, but I think that um, I think that there definitely is something to take away from that. I, I mean, there is. I think that is really cool when they're just talking. Well, I guess I'll see you at school, and then all that is in between it. She imagined she was singeing him too, staring at the ash marks on her fingertips. She imagined placing two in the nape of his neck and burning a hole straight through to his Adam's apple. Like, yeah, that's that's so pretty. Cool. That's pretty <laughs> visceral and real. Um, but yeah, Dan did a great job. Thank you so much for reading that. Thanks. I think that you really did justice to it. And yeah, <clears throat> so uh, book giveaway. We're still doing the book giveaway. So if you want a free. Uh, book we've you know just actually you don't even need to send us an email just send us a direct message doesn't matter um just say hey i want a book and we'll give you a book so, <laughs> a, book? Uh, uh, a book yeah so send us a little thing we'll give you a free book whatever you want there's actually a uh there's a really cool hold on i just want to pull up one book to talk to you guys about <laughs> oh yeah this is the pride and joy this is the one that you know that the winner, if you send us something that is like the funniest joke or some kind of quip, uh, witty quip or something like that, we're going to send you Henry Winkler's I've Never Met an Idiot on the River. <laughs> it's a book written by Henry Winkler. Himself. The, and yeah, the man from The Legend from Happy Days about fishing on a river. It's great. I'm so excited yes. to give this away to our best, you know, oh, whatever. We're also going to have a writing competition <laughs> down the road. So t stay in tune for that. Um, all right. So what do we accept, Dan? Uh, short stories, poems, uh, the directions on how to plant a jalapeno 
plant. Uh, we will accept um, the the troubles and tribulations of crossing the Oregon River uh, and or trail. <laughs> the lyrics uh, to Rawhide, whatever yeah, that is. Yeah, exactly. If you can give us the lyrics to Rawhide, that that would be a great, great submission. Uh, submission. Yeah, that would be awesome. All right. Well, thanks so much, guys. Thanks for tuning into Tail Time Podcast. Please submit stories to tailtimepodcast at gmail.com. And if you happen to prefer reading your own piece on the podcast yourself, please let us know and be happy to reach out to you. Uh, thanks again. And tune in next week for when we do something else. Tail time. Tail time.